word of God from 2 Samuel. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for those and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. For a moment as I pray for us and drop my notes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how you lead us in so many different ways through your word. Lord, how you show us what is right, show us how we ought to live, show us how we can overcome our natural inclinations that are interrupted and stained by sin, and you can make us into the kind of people that you want in the world, salt and light. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning pleasing in your sight as we visit your word. And we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to open our minds to what it means and how we ought to follow you. And we ask these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And the people of God together said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last fall, we began a sermon series in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we learned a great number of things. The title of that sermon series was Looking for a King. And what we learned were several things. It was the story of God's people at the time, the people of Israel, settled in the land promised to their forefathers and struggling 
with the surrounding cultures which did not honor God. And so the people cried out to have a king like those surrounding tribes and peoples, and God relented, granting them this request. And so Saul is anointed king. He looks like a king. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's broad-shouldered. He just looks like a leader. And quickly, his devotion to God and his actual competence as a leader were shaken. After repeated failures, the Lord rejected Saul as king and instructed his prophet Samuel to anoint a new king in his place. Instead of a dynastic order, which is a way of saying instead of somebody from Saul's family becoming king in his place, usually the first male heir in that time, the Lord directed Samuel to the youngest son of Jesse. This boy named David who had been called in from tending the sheep because even though Jesse was told by Samuel, gather your sons so that I may anoint a king, he wasn't even considered eligible because he was the youngest. He was out taking care of the sheep. He was minding stuff. He was a little dude, sunburnt. He wasn't royalty material. He was the most unlikely choice. And yet, David is brought into the royal court and is first welcomed by Saul, but as David's popularity grows, Saul begins to resent him. And eventually, this became open contempt, and Saul seeks to kill David. In one instance, hurling a spear at him. Now, I'm not going to go in full detail on all this, but I just need to set our context for why we're going into this next book and what it means. So David, knowing that Saul wants to kill him, goes on the run. And as he's going on the run, he has his friends with him, his mighty men, and he goes to some lengths to avoid the murderous wrath of Saul. And even when he is presented with the opportunity to kill Saul, David relents. He doesn't. He has opportunities. He does not take them. He doesn't take advantage of his circumstances because he does not wish to put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. If you hear some emphasis in the way I'm saying that, we're going to revisit that because it's crucial to the way that David thinks about God and kings. And it's going to have a huge impact on how David relates to what he later learns in the passage we're going to go to this morning. So in that series of sermons, the themes and stories taught us about the insufficiency of human leadership to fulfill our longings and our need for the true king, our Lord God. That's what we walked through beginning last fall, even up to the Lenten season this year. Merely having a human leader doesn't fix things. It doesn't make things the way they ought to be. Sometimes it makes them more complicated than they ever should be. We also see the beauty of God's grace and mercy in those stories, in the many second chances that Saul is given, and in the valor and humility of David, who knows he's not the natural heir to Saul, even as the Lord has him anointed to replace Saul. And even David, with his profound devotion to the Lord, seems to be both a righteous person, choosing wisely, and, like so many of us, a self-protecting sinner whose motives aren't clear 
or pure. So now we are going to return to the story of David in 2 Samuel in this new series. And this new series is entitled, Acquiring a Taste for God as King. In acquiring a taste for God as King, what I want you to be thinking about is think about the process you went through to get yourself acclimated to something you didn't initially like. For some of you, that will be, I didn't start drinking coffee until I was 25, because, ew. And I'm with you. Coffee does taste like dirt. But once you acquire a taste for it, it's delicious dirt that makes the morning possible. Some of you had to acquire a taste for food from outside the region in which you grew up. You didn't know what to do with the deep fermented flavors of Korean food. And yet now, you think of kimchi and you're like, ah, yes, I want that. At least that's what you should think, in my opinion. But whatever process you've gone through, whether it was learning to read from a different novelist because you had heard their books were good, but you just didn't get into it at first. Anybody, Dune? Anybody? Sometimes you have to acquire a taste for something that you then learn is deeper, more profound, and more satisfying than you would have given credit, given it credit for. Like, I was late to Radiohead. I can't imagine that I wouldn't be listening to Radiohead. So when we acquire a taste for something, sometimes we have to acclimate ourselves to the differences in order to appreciate what it's bringing. And that's what I think we're going to see as we go through 2 Samuel. We're going to be learning about David in his reign as the king of Israel, the best king they ever had. But it's complicated by sin, sin inflicted on him and sin of his own volition. And we're going to learn through that that David was incredible in many ways, but deeply flawed in many ways. And what it's going to do is it's going to acclimate us to the deeper and more satisfying experience of having God as our king. And that may feel like a spoiler alert, but I think it's actually really helpful for us to go in listening for these themes. So, we've gone through the survey of what we've preached, and now I want us to go to that passage that we heard read by Jason in 2 Samuel, but first we need to do some context. So in my best TV announcer voice, previously on David, Sandals and Scandals. So 1 Samuel ends with Saul on the battlefield against the Philistines. His sons die in battle, including Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, David's best, closest friend in the world. Saul is struck by arrows. Knowing that he's not going to survive, he calls his armor bearer to run to him. An armor bearer is basically just like it sounds. He carries all the equipment for warfare that Saul may need on the battlefield. So he's accustomed to battles. He's accustomed to combat. He's there to equip and protect his king. He calls his armor bearer to him, and he says, I, effectively, I'm not going to make it, so I need you to finish me off. Like, I've been hit by too many arrows, and I don't want the Philistines to get a hold of me. 
and make me a humiliation, not just a loss in the battle. But the armor bearer, and this is a quote from 1 Samuel 31, would not, for he feared greatly. So even this combat-hardened fellow is not going to run through his king, who's already mortally wounded by arrows. He's not going to kill him because he feared greatly. So Saul, in his last moments, falls on his own sword rather than risk capture and humiliation at the hand of the Philistines. Now, we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and though these, these are two books, they were meant to be read as one narrative. So we, as hearing this text, just like those who originally heard it, would have 1 Samuel 31 in mind when we get to 2 Samuel 1. Because some things happen that are the same things. It's a report of what happened in that previous chapter, but it's told differently. And we're supposed to know that. We've just seen Saul's death at his own hand before being overwhelmed by the Philistines. And then we switch settings to rejoin David. And we as the hearers know these things that David does not necessarily know. So, at the first part of the chapter, I'm just going to read some portions quickly. So, it was after the death of Saul when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. The Amalekites. David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp and his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage and David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. That's a different story. It's a different story altogether. And narrative stories have different features. We know things that David doesn't know. We know that Saul rammed himself through with his own sword and died. He wasn't killed by this Amalekite. We know that this story is setting up tension that we need resolved. And sometimes the way stories work is they use things called tropes. Are you familiar with the word tropes generally? Like maybe you've heard it. Like when a character in a movie or a TV like sniffs frequently and rubs their nose, you recognize it not as seasonal allergies, which is the usual reason people do that. It's a trope. It's a commonly used visual shorthand to communicate that that person sniffing is using and likely addicted to cocaine, right? When a character changes their voice and accent when speaking aloud, but they are alone in that scene, 
maybe even having a conversation with two parts of themselves. Think of Gollum talking to his own reflection in two towers. It's a trope that communicate that this person has multiple personalities. When a character in a Star Wars thing ignites a lightsaber and the color of the blade is red, it's a trope. You've learned something. When a character is nerdy, has bad posture and eyeglasses, then takes off the glasses, fusses with their hair, and they're suddenly very attractive, you know, it's a trope. These tropes are shorthands to communicate sometimes complex ideas very quickly. It's artistry. It helps you not have to spend paragraphs describing all of the conflicted information or all of the background. It's quick and elegant. We get the picture very, very quickly. So David had returned from striking down another enemy of God's people, the Amalekites, and someone shows up, an Amalekite. Well, an Amalekite in the Old Testament is like a trope. It's a way of signaling not just who that person is, but what their character is like. The Amalekites were named for, a, for, um, for Amalek, a king whose lineage traces back to Esau. Now, what do you think of Esau when you hear his name? Probably you think the same thing I think, which is, oh yeah, he's one of the sons of Jacob, and he decided that he was going to give up his birthright he was going to disrespect the authority of tradition, the authority of what God had established for his family, and he is going to give that up, and he's going to, I'm sorry, I said Jacob, I meant Isaac, please forgive me. Um, but he decided, I'm going to give all that up for a bowl of stew. And so this sets the character. This is who these people are from, and the Amalekites have the same character of disregarding the authority that God has established in order to get short-term gains. They're kind of schemers. They do things in order to get ends that are near-term, not the long-term ends of pleasing God. So from this terse description and from the context, we see that this guy who shows up and tells David about Saul and Jonathan's deaths, that he's scheming. He's showing up with all the signs of struggle and mourning. He claims to have been with Saul when he died. And he just so happens to have Saul's stuff, the crown from his head and the armlet from his arm. This is an almost perfect scenario of the king is dead, long live the king. This schemer is positioning himself well to benefit from being in the room where it happened when David becomes king of Israel because Saul has perished. After all, he is from the tribe that David recently vanquished, so he's just trying to save his own skin. And I want to be clear, this kind of benefit by association is not a peculiar sin to any type of person. Scrambling for recognition and reward by any means is merely a human temptation. And why would it have worked? Why would the Amalekite risk this strategy? Because it was known that Saul had been seeking to destroy David. And David might welcome the news that Saul was dead. There was potential for David to break out in song, throw a party, break out the wine, let's have a barbecue. But David does something unexpected. He goes into mourning. 
he rips his clothes. That is the traditional expression of as I rip my clothes, so my inner state is ripped apart by the loss of this person. He starts mourning. And after several hours of mourning, he turns again to the Amalekite and he asks him, verse 14, how is it, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The Lord's anointed. Not harming the one anointed by God to lead his people. This was a big deal to David. It was a big deal to the armor bearer. He was terrified to kill Saul, even at his request. And it comes from many places in the Old Testament. But the most obvious place is Exodus 22, verse 28, which says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. It's respecting God's rule over everything, even those he places as leaders before us. The Amalekite is betting on David being first concerned with the question, who is king? But David knows that it is God who is really king. David has the Amalekite executed. It is the punishment for regicide, the murder of a king. In verse 16, David says to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It was justice served. And it reorients, reorients us to the central question around the history of the kings of Israel. Who is king, really? As we explore this theme over the coming weeks, you will have the opportunity, we will have the opportunity to reflect on the ups and downs of David's reign as king and it's going to drive us to look at his rule and long for the more perfect, more complete, less complicated by sin rule of our God and king. And we will see that David, the best of all the kings of God's people, was still a complicated man with weaknesses and shortcomings. But his reign and his heart for the Lord give us a shadow, a silhouette of the coming king, the Lord Jesus so David, knowing who is really king, laments the loss, of his dear, the loss of his dearest friend, Jonathan. And perhaps surprisingly for us, he laments his nemesis, King Saul. He does not triumph over the death of his opponent. He does not give in to the temptation towards schadenfreude, that beautiful German word of taking joy at the misfortune of others. He remembers who Saul had been. And he brings us to lament. Lament and the grieving process bring a lot of things to the surface in complicated and sometimes disjointed ways. I've been reflecting on the ways in which we can walk with each other in grief. And as I've studied and contemplated these things, I've noticed that some things that are helpful don't connect until you've experienced grief and loss. I had not read all the way through C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, until I was mourning the loss of my mother. I just couldn't get into it because I didn't get it yet. But I found it profoundly helpful. I watched Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, alongside friends who were baffled by it, could not understand the shifting time frames, the lack of narrative, but I got it 
having lost many of my family and attending to many more, walking through grief, grief sets its own schedule. It doesn't follow a neat narrative. It's feelings washing up on you, good and bad. And there are still, in the midst of grief, choices that we make. Choices that we make in how to honor the memory of those we've lost. Choices we make in how we interact with that sadness. Do we let it fester and become bitterness? Or do we take it to the Lord in our vulnerability and ask him to work in ways that we don't know how else to ask? He does love us so. He gives us what we need. And so as David laments for Saul and Jonathan... He's inviting us to join what he's experiencing. He invites the people to join him. He makes sure that they know that this is the lament and this is what we're going to use to mourn the passing of Saul and Jonathan. He invites us in to get it with him. And so as David is helping us to wrestle with this tragedy, the king and his son dying in battle, grieving the loss of his closest friend, someone whose friendship has been longer and deeper than his romantic experiences with the women in his life, he uses this refrain. You see it in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And he repeats it again in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. He ends the lament with that same refrain, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. He's making a choice in his grieving to remember in this moment that Saul was truly a mighty king and that he and his son were champions, however imperfect, of their people. He's also choosing to mourn the loss of who God had selected to lead the people. We do not always stay in the same frame of mind when we're grieving. The ways we remember our loved ones shift and change over time, but how we engage with their loss can be significant to the time we're in, and David is seeing things in this moment from what I would call a cultivated perspective. He has made a practice of seeing things from the perspective of God's laws and God's ways. And though Saul did seek his death, David is loving his enemy in mourning him as the champion of Israel. When God is king, we can grieve the loss of leaders with whom we disagree. When God is king, we can grieve the deaths of those who are not, not just not with us, but those who are actively against us. But honestly, who does that? Who can do that? Who can actually mourn those who have been awful to us? It's easier to think that we just need to rejoice at the death of someone who is mean, to clap with the crowd when, when the big bad dies in the story. But that's not who we're called to be. That's not who our king is. That's not how he does. Because they're made in the image of God, just as we are, 
We can mourn their loss. So how do we do this? How, how do we lean into this? How do we deny what we might be feeling? We do feel what we feel, and we take these feelings and these impulses to cheer the deaths of those we oppose, and we surrender them to our King, Jesus. Jesus, who prayed for those who crucified him. Jesus, who took all the punishment we deserved and gave us all his righteousness to live out in obedience to him. By faith, we can lament redemptively. We can mourn redemptively. Grieving the universal loss that is death, even when the world around us cheers the misfortune of others. When God is our king, we are empowered to lament loss regardless of how it changes our circumstances. And doesn't that create in us a desire, a craving for that kind of calm and that kind of confidence in the goodness of our God? Knowing that he's our king, when people oppose us, can we stay in the moment, not get reactive? When we hear of loss, can we do, as the New Testament encourages us, mourn with those who mourn? We can. One of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who mourn. We, we can do that as we lean into, as we trust Jesus, as we really give him full sway over our lives over our choices, over our priorities. He can make us into the kind of people who can be that resolved, that generous, in spite of the harm we've received. And doesn't that stir in us a craving, a thirst for righteousness that comes from our allegiance to the true king? I think it can, and I'm excited to see how God is going to draw us into this narrative even more deeply and learn to appreciate and desire strongly his kingship in our lives. Amen? Amen.